0: Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I began this podcast almost a year ago, and now I'm wrapping up the first season. My conversations aim to show my variety of interests. This range from the law, international trade, academics, filmmaking and storytelling, sports, entrepreneurship, etc. I've had great guests, I have very interesting and insightful conversations, and I have learned a lot in the process. I look forward to continuing the podcast for many years, and hopefully you will be there to listen. In this last episode of the first season, I am hosting Elisa Pasquale. She was raised in Guadalajara and, like me, attended the American School. She then went on to MIT to become an engineer. She then, wor- she then worked in Silicon Valley for some years before moving to Europe. She is currently a founder and CEO of Arcadia, which aims to provide peer-to-peer cash transfer and other financial services to refugees. In our conversation, we talk about growing up, sticking to your goals, raising children in Switzerland, and some of the most important lessons she's learned at MIT, Silicon Valley, and now running a company. If you like the show, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. Thank you very much, and please listen in. Hello. Uh, thank you for joining us for a new episode of the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I'm really happy to host uh, Elisa Pasquale. Uh, I just met her, but uh, we'll hopefully have a really interesting conversation. How are you today, Elisa?
1: Very good. Thank you so much for having me here.
0: Um, well, I, I maybe it's important to say how I came across you. I was, I was browsing on LinkedIn, and you popped up. Uh, in a post uh, about your brother Carlos. I, I know your brother uh, from the American school in Guadalajara and I was like oh uh, another Pasquale here in in Switzerland yeah. and I just reached out to you and you were so kind and gracious to accept my invitation.
1: No absolutely I mean it's, it's, it's a small world actually because yeah if, if you think about it Guadalajara is not a very like it is a big city but it's not a very well-known city necessarily and the fact that you know, suddenly you you know my brother and you're in Switzerland too. I mean, it's not many Mexicans end up in Switzerland anyway, so...
0: Yeah, and most of the Mexicans that I come across uh, abroad, they're from Mexico City, not from Guadalajara. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So, <laughs> no, it's good. And then I'm really happy to meet you too. I mean, I think the job that you do is really interesting as well, like in general, and also the podcasts And I had the pleasure of listening to your podcast uh, yesterday with, uh, with uh, I don't remember her name. Gretel. With Gretel, yeah, <laughs> and it was great. And, and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm very happy to participate.
0: So you, you're, you were not born in Guadalajara?
1: No, no, I was born in Italy. Um, our dad is Italian, so um, yeah. So, so you, you know, my, my, my parents were living in Italy and I was born there and then when I was nine months old they moved back to Mexico because my mother is Mexican and I grew up in Mexico pretty much.
0: In Guadalajara? Uh,
1: well, for four years in Mexico City and then uh, the rest of my, uh, until I was 18 in Guadalajara.
0: And uh, how, how was growing up in Guadalajara from your experience?
1: Um, It's great. I mean, I love Mexico in general. I I really love Mexico City. I love Guadalajara. Guadalajara is is a very warm sort of city, I think. Just also like the climate is really nice. There are a lot of things to do. I, uh, the, the biggest memories I have of Guadalajara is um, uh, going to music school there because, you know, I was obviously going in high school doing doing the work, but I was also studying piano at the conservatory there ah. uh, in the afternoons.
0: Uh, since which age? Uh, sorry? Uh, from when? Which age did you start uh, doing From,
1: f- f- I started when I was 14. Ah, okay. So I started I obviously piano, like, you know, for classes since I was very little, since I was four. But then I started studying at the conservatory when I was 14. And that was really cool because uh, one of my greatest memories is, you know, the the classes started at 3 p.m. So right after normal school, you'd go to the conservatory and, you know, uh, your, your parents drop you off in the in the in the in the in, in, the, in, the, in the plaza right in front of the Teatro de Gollado. Ah, it was there. Yeah, the it was right next to the, the Gollado. So there's, there's the, the Guillado, there's the chapel, and then right next to it is, is the music school. And I remember just walking across that plaza on all, every afternoon and seeing the life of the city. You know, because you know every once in a while they would raise the flag or they would lower the, the flag, and then you know during the winter they would have the the. The little uh, markets and the el nacimiento in the middle of the plaza, and in the summer, you know, the kids running there, and this is one of my biggest memories of Mexico. Uh, is is this, this walking across this this central plaza, and uh, and, and that's my biggest memory of Guadalajara.
0: Uh, I think you 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 were a good student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, 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 so uh, with the, yeah. So they tell me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm curious because uh, about like uh, you growing up and. You eventually ended up going to MIT. Uh, I'm curious, what do you think was more influential uh, for you growing up? Was it like maybe the music uh, lessons? Was it going to the American school? Because this is like a lot of students who attend the American school end up going to abroad. Yep. Was it your the environment at your, at your home? Like, uh, was it the combination of all of them? What,
1: yeah, was it your I own mean- drive? Yeah, there was a lot of that, for sure, Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about that. Yeah, so definitely, I mean, I think for everybody, everybody's a product of everything that happens around them. And, you know, in my case, I was always a very, you know, I was the firstborn, uh, so I was, you know, most firstborns tend to be a little bit competitive and stuff like that. And, you know, I was always competing with with my friends Uh, at the American school. I went through elementary school. I was in a group that was had a lot of really, really smart people there. Uh, uh, a lot of my uh, fellow students were uh, Americans, right? Uh, you know, for me, the going to study in the United States or anything like that was not in my radar. But I remember something very specific that happened when I was in third grade. Great. And yeah. we were uh, all going to the library because it was a library day, and then all, all the students there, you know, my, my companions, we were sort of like being competitive and being braggy. And one said, oh, you know, well, I don't care. I'm better than you because when I grow up, I'm going to go to Harvard. And then somebody else said, well, I don't care because I'm smarter than you and I'm going to end up going to Stanford. And so they started naming all these uh, American universities. And I was there and I was like, you know, I was a fairly good student. I was, uh, you know, very competitive as well. And they're rattling off all these universities that, I, you know, that I didn't even hear about were definitely not on my radar. And then it was my turn, and they're like, okay, Lisa, what about you? And I'm like, oh, damn, you know, I have to <laughs> make it better. And, and I asked the person next to me, "Is like, well, what's the hardest university to get into in the United States? And somebody said, well, I don't know, you know, maybe MIT. So, well, you know, when I graduate, I'm going to go to MIT. And I remember that moment that, that, you know, since then, you know, MIT was in my radar. And then, obviously, since I was very little uh, at home, I always liked to build things. I was always doing experiments and, 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 and trying to figure out how things work, you know, uh, I took toys apart you know when my brother was 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 just a little kid you know he always cried because i would take his toys apart I would put them back together and they would still work, but there was always like a piece extra, you know? Yeah. Um, that like that we, was missing. That's
0: what happens with IKEA furniture. Yeah, right. exactly. You always
1: have this extra screw. So, yeah, I was definitely tinkering a lot around the house. That was definitely in my nature. I, I, I remember, you know, begging my parents to buy me uh, books on how to build things. I remember I built a little uh, motor, you know, from paper clips and and, and like a, I made a La Bobina. I don't know how you say it in English. The windings of the motor with uh, with wire, uh, you know, all on its own. And to get a good motor, you need to have like 300 windings. And here you are, here I am yeah. doing all the windings. And um, so, yeah, I was always like devouring these books on how to build things. But, you know, I was so little, I didn't know that that was called engineering. To me, that was just science. Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked. So def- definitely there there was always, you know, since I remember, as far back as I remember this, this uh, engineering sort of mind that I wanted to build things and I wanted to tinker with things and then you know obviously I, I heard about MIT and as I grew and I started learning more about things I realized that in order to get to these universities there's no way around that you have to be a very good student. So I very deliberately made sure that I ended up being a good student.
0: But but this was also fostered by your parents and like by the environment, by the school because I mean I don't know I think you attended American school a bit earlier than me but when I was there, like, this was something that they were pushing you to, to, uh,
1: no, to do? No, because, uh, uh, like, so I'm, a, um, I don't know how many years older I am than you, but but when, when I was there, there wasn't, like, the school wasn't, yes, of course, they, they always, like, there's a lot of uh, American students and foreign students, so, of course, they try to, you know, push them to apply to American universities and stuff like that, but I was among the first who applied to one of these big universities, I mean, and, and I was one of the first that actually got accepted from mm-hmm. my whole school into a top 10 university. And uh, so what happened is that after me, suddenly, it's like, oh, you know, it, it is possible. So let's let's try to foster okay. that a little bit better. But I remember like in high school fighting for taking some AP exams because there were a lot of courses that weren't offered. And I said, well, even if you don't offer the course, let me take the AP exam and I will study it by myself at home. Oh, you did that. And there, Yeah, and there was a lot of resistance to that. And, you know, sometimes they wanted to order it. Sometimes they didn't want it to order. So there was a lot of like, it wasn't easy, actually. So I, I really did have to fight to try to get these uh, these qualifications and these exams and I remember my guidance counselor at the time She's like, oh, you know, why don't you apply to, you know, Bryn Mawr or all these, like she, 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 she suggested like this suite of liberal arts schools and I said, no, I want to go to a technical school, let me apply to MIT and Caltech and they're like, but are you sure, you know, then, you know, you're really good at history, you're good at literature, don't you want to go to a liberal arts school, you know, Bryn Mawr is an all-girls school, it's fantastic for that, and I'm like, yeah, but they don't have an engineering department, why would I even bother applying, so I remember it wasn't that easy, so obviously, I'm very thankful for the American school for for the opportunities, and I had fantastic teachers there and everything. But but it wasn't smooth sailing, and it's not like they paid my way. I I definitely okay. had to like push them a little bit and, and and fight a little bit in a way. You know, obviously, you know, it wasn't a real fight, but I did have to ask for for the things that I, that, that I thought were necessary, and. I am happy to see that, you know, by the time my brother came along seven years later, a lot of that infrastructure was there a little bit, put in place a little bit better because they started having more career fairs where they would bring more alumni from these top 10 schools. And since then, a lot more more students have ended up in really good schools.
0: Yeah, actually, a lot of my fellow classmates ended up going to the U.S. And now I think that that's like the main calling card of the American school. Yeah, the fact sure. that you go to an American university. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm also like your brother. Also went to a uh, uh, Ivy League school.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he so, went to Harvard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to Harvard, the, the main one. <laughs> so, like, was was it was he like uh, inspired by your journey? Was it like something that you did together, like your parents, or?
1: No, I mean, uh, my brother and I have always been a little bit uh, very friendly, competitive. Yeah. But it's kind of been a, like a very unfair competition, I think, because I'm a lot older, right? So. Uh, from my perspective, this is oh, I have to do all these things that my brother will never be able to catch up, right? But from his perspective, is like oh my goodness, I have to do all these things that have already been done and. You know, I think I think that wasn't, like, the most ideal situation for us uh, growing up because, it, you know, you know, uh, in the end, we, we ended up maybe fighting more than the brothers and sisters <laughs> should. But on the other hand, there, there was a lot of support as well. I mean, I remember, you know, helping my brother, you know, maybe giving him advice here and there. Uh, you know, the essay that he wrote for Harvard, you know, it was fantastic. It was a very, very beautiful essay about, you know, you know, obviously you have to show who you are and stuff like that. And... In many ways, I was really glad that he let me read it because I got to see a part of my brother that he didn't always necessarily show to me. Yeah. Because to me, he always had to show this, like, I'm very strong, I'm stronger than sort of competitive sort of thing. <laughs> and I don't think that my parents did this intentionally. Uh, I think my parents were very. Um, you know, I think they were very proud of, uh, bo- they still are, of, our, of both of our ac- accomplishments and they were very well-meaning. But, you know, underneath it all, nevertheless, when your parent says, oh, we're very proud of Elisa, then the other brother says, oh, well, what about me? So I have to do something. And, and I see that, too, with my three kids, right? I mean, I have three kids myself. They're very little. They're five years old. But if I give praise to one of them for say putting their toys away, the other two are like, Well, why didn't you praise us? And and it's like even though the parents don't intentionally try to foster this competition, it's it's always this little little rivalry there. And in my case I was extremely competitive. But on the other hand, this, this also like helps us achieve all the things that we did. So I'm also very thankful for that.
0: the, the reason I, I mean I'm asking all of this is because I'm thinking about this all the time. Like I have two daughters and I'm I mean I, I guess I was raised in a Thinking that you go to, maybe this no longer applies, but I was really thinking you go to a good university, you get a good job. Uh, and then, so I'm doing like everything in my power just to make their, their way easier than mm-hmm. I had. Uh, right. But I, I still don't know like what's the, the recipe for.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, I think like, <clears throat> so it's very interesting because uh, right now I volunteer as an educational counselor for my university, for MIT. Uh, what that means that I I get to interview students who are trying to get into in- MIT. I also do that. Oh, fantastic! For you, which university? Stanford. Oh, fantastic! Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I find it really refreshing because I mean, you work, you have your regular day job, and things are a bit complicated at the moment. Like you get into this routine, and when you talk to these like young students, they're like so passionate about things. They're like so energetic. Like they want to change the world, and it's just refreshing. Like it, it yeah, makes absolutely. me. Yeah, absolutely.
1: But but one of the things that I always tell them is that, you know, when I was applying to MIT, I was so competitive that I said, oh, you know, if I don't get into MIT, my life is over. You know, it's not worth living. Why would I ever want to go to second tier university? It's true. (laughs) You know, you really are at that point. Like, it gets so competitive and you're caught up on that. And you're also only 18, right? So you don't have this perspective, you know here's another like analogy right I'm, I'm gonna get to a point eventually but there's another analogy like when you when you break up with your first boyfriend or girlfriend you right you think it's the end you think it's the end of the world you'll never fall in love again you'll never have the same love ever and then it happens again and maybe it happens several times before you finally find the person that's really the right person for you and you marry with them and you, you you have kids and you live happily ever after but <laughs> it's the same with the university right you know, I, I tell all my students now, which is which is something that I wish somebody had told me, is that, you know, if you forf- there's a lot of luck involved into getting to the university of your choice because there's so, just so many very highly qual- qualified people applying. And also it could be that, oh, you know, maybe you forgot to, to show a little bit of something in your essay, right? I mean, you know, or maybe, you know, your test results weren't quite perfect that one day, you know? Uh, so there's a lot of luck involved. But ultimately, what you have to realize and that one, one of the things that I realized through, through experience is that you know, I'm not who I am because of MIT. You know, and I'm not who I am because of music school, and I'm not who I am just because of the American school. And it goes back to what you asked me earlier. I mean, you're who you are because of everything. And then, even after MIT, there are a lot of people who graduate from MIT, and then they went and they went home and they had really quiet lives. You know, they're just normal engineers. You know, they're employees. They're happy that way. And then there are some people who didn't even go to MIT. You know, don't, didn't even go to university, and they're out there changing the world. So yeah. ultimately, you have a lot more control. In the future than what you think you do when you're young so when you're young a lot of things just sort of happen to you and you try to influence that by getting like really good grades or or, you know taking these tests or you know having these achievements and all these accolades and yeah that that maybe smooths the way a little bit but that doesn't mean that there are not other fifty thousand ways that you can still achieve the same thing or even other things that are equally important uh
0: i mean yes this comes with a bit of hindsight and experience yeah but i feel that this with my kids there's like this blind spot that even though i'm aware of everything that you're saying and i myself lived through it like i still want them to get the best grades do this go to music classes go swimming yeah. or like do everything and i don't know what's the what should be the adequate balance
1: yeah i mean it's definitely really hard i mean the, the way i do it with my kids is like because they're also in music school and stuff like that <laughs> Uh, so, of course, I mean, my my philosophy at the moment is is uh, to just, like, let them try a lot of things and then eventually let them pursue what they like. On the other hand, is like, if you don't sort of push them a little bit and show them, hey, you know, you could learn this instrument or this instrument exists or these painting classes exist, right? They might not know and they might never discover it, right? So if you have the means and if you have those opportunities to show them, then please, by all means, take it, right? Uh, but on the other hand, like, Switzerland has been very interesting because Switzerland tends to have a more, like... Uh, uh, let it be uh, sort of philosophy for kids and let them which, play which that
0: was for me a bit scary at first yeah it was shocking <laughs> right for
1: me too because especially because I, I you know I had a childhood that was always like on the go right and, and I tried to fight against that uh, here in Switzerland as well and But on the other hand, is like I see like, you know, my kids are only doing like kindergarten right now and they take Suzuki cello, which is like, you know, twinkle, twinkle on the cello, basically. Um, But it basically, because it's three of them, it consumes all of our afternoons. Like every afternoon I have to like, you know, ship them from here to from 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 one end of the city to the other end of the city. So they have their first cello uh, rehearsal and then they go back and then they have the music theory rehearsal. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is what my parents did for me. And now, finally, I realize the time investment and the sacrifice and like, you know, they would complain and they're like, oh, you know, I I don't want to take you to this chess tournament or this thing, you know, on a Saturday because it starts at nine. I'm like, come on, Dad. I mean, it's my chess tournament. You should be proud. You know, I'm doing this for the, you know, for the pride of the family something. And, And now it's like, now I realize it's like, well, I still have to do laundry. I still have to cook. I still have to do this. I still have to do, plus I have to do my own work. Now I understand them, right? When as a kid, I just dismissed it because they weren't like fully catering to me. So it's really interesting how life really, it really is in charge of teaching you everything you need yeah, to know exactly, about life you know exactly. that, <laughs> that you know things that you really don't see as a child you, you eventually see them as an adult so that's
0: pretty it's cool. true and uh <laughs> but uh can you tell me a bit about what what was it like to go from Guadalajara to to mit
1: uh yeah i mean for me it was really nice i mean i, I really loved mit uh it was for me finally uh, the chance to sort of prove myself in a way Because as you said, I mean, I I was a pretty good student and and back then my high school still wasn't, uh, you know, it it has evolved and has gotten better in a lot of ways, you know, and uh, with a lot more courses and a lot more offerings. So when you go to to a place like MIT, I mean, MIT is also right next door to Harvard. So the first thing that impressed me about MIT is the fact that they have seven libraries, seven libraries. And each library has like thousands and thousands of books. And like, you know, on the first day tour, you you look at this library and you're like, wow, I'm going to read all the books in the library, you know. And uh, eventually, you figure out that libraries are basically for studying so that you don't have the roommate's noise. right? You just don't have time to read all these books. But, but it was definitely really good. And, and the thing that, 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 for me, was most important about MIT was, first of all, most of the learning that happened for me at MIT was not through the books, and it was not during the lectures, and was not even through the, te- the, 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 the teachers or the professors or the labs. It was through my fellow students because I met a lot of students that came from many different backgrounds. Uh, A lot of them, you know, the majority of them were a lot, lot smarter than me. And I thought I was, you know, the smartest person in my high school. And then I come to MIT and, you know, no way, you're you're not even average there. (laughs) Um, And just understanding how they approach the world, how they solve their problems, you know, what kind of families they came from and stuff like that. It really, like, it's the first time you leave home, really. So it's, you know, obviously academics, it, it was really good for me because I was very happy that I was finally doing what I really, really wanted with a density that I really, really wanted. But it's also like it's the first time you sort of become aware of the world, right? So that was really good. And, and, and you know, I'm still very, very good friends with a lot of friends there. And, and, and I still very much admire every single person who, who went to that university with me because they, they're all pretty remarkable.
0: What you're saying uh, resonates completely with my experience because I actually when I was going to Stanford, I, I was so into studying that I neglected everything else because I I just, I don't know, like I just didn't realize that. And this is one of the things that when I talk to young students who want to go, I tell them like, look, I did this. If you have the opportunity, I mean, focus on your studies, but like the experience of being there and like the people that you meet is what's most-
1: And they are friendships that will last for you through the rest of your life and you never know later. I mean, like right now I have this little startup if you want maybe we talk about it later yeah, yeah, I, 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 uh, but but it's like it's like people that you know 20 years later you're doing some other project and you think oh the perfect person would be this person that i met long ago but obviously this doesn't only happen through university it happens throughout every through job yeah, it yeah. happens also all the way back to high school you know i'm still in touch with with you know a lot of my friends in high school a lot of my friends from music school uh, obviously uh, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff and obviously then you make these connections that are sort yeah. of like because you knew my brother or your brother knew my brother, you know, and you never know where that, that goes. But I mean, that's definitely one thing that I have learned in life is that basically what determines your success, part of it is just your efforts and how, how you dedicate yourself. But the vast majority of it is, is determined by, by the support network you're able to build and you're able to connect. And, and obviously, as a team and with the help of people, you're able to achieve a lot more than, than you would by yourself. Uh, it might be a little bit uh, more exasperating because there's more disagreement there's more negotiation required but ultimately you can do a lot more with, with, with support and help from, from other people
0: And uh, what, what did you do after MIT you, you worked in the in the Bay Area yeah I it? did
1: so I graduated as an engineer and then I uh, you know a third of the engineering class you know, I studied computer science electrical engineering computer science and, and basically a third of the graduating class just ends up in Silicon Valley yeah. uh, Some of them then go on to Stanford to do their PhDs. And Stanford is a really good program because it's also it's a little bit more business minded as well. And like in Silicon Valley, there's all this like very big hubbub about starting uh, your own companies and start like, like that. I myself worked in a couple of startups there. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I did everything, you know, under Sun that's engineering wise. So uh, I, I was very lucky that my first job uh, and my first boss were the best bosses I've ever had. And so I was lucky that my first job experience was an experience where I really learned how engineering should be done, where I really learned how a good team should be managed. And then I I can't say the same for for my future, right? In the future, like eventually you run into bad bosses or bad, worse companies or whatever. But even now as a manager, the the, the way that I try to manage my teams now are lessons I learned from that very first manager who I will always uh, shout out to Skip Anderson from Trimble Navigation and other fantastic bosses I had there, uh, you know, uh, Scott Smith and also um, Jim Green. If you guys ever hear this podcast, uh, you know, I, I really still admire you very, very much and, and everything I know about management and how to properly lead engineers, I learned from you guys. So, uh,
0: But the other experiences with like bad bosses and uh, bad companies, like you said, they're also good because they teach you what not to do.
1: Yes, but, okay, So here, but no, it's good that you bring that up but because I tell this to people, right? So especially people going and building new startups, right? Um, there's 50,000 ways to fail. You know, it's so easy to fail at a startup and there's only really one or two ways to be successful. And if you've never seen how to be successful, even though you know how not to do it, you just know one way not to do it, right? You have to have this model or at least have known of how other people were successful so that you at least sort of know, well, you know, we want to be successful in this way. Because if you don't have that model, you will spend a lot of time trying to find your own model and it still might not work. So honestly, I do think it's important that that engineers or young people in industry get a good boss and a good environment at the beginning of your career. So if your first job, if you don't like it, I would suggest, you know, I would suggest to my kids or whatever, quit it, find a good job, get good training in a good company, you know, find the Google, the Facebook or whatever, you know, a good company that, that really pushes your career that is full with really good people that is doing really good products that, you know, go there. Don't end up going working for a really crappy startup that ends up failing or with with bosses that don't know how to manage and then think that that's how the world works because then you will have a skewed version of the world that's not going to fix itself until you finally do find this good good example. So the sooner you find this good example, the better.
0: And uh, was here during your time there in Silicon Valley that you decided like I want to be an entrepreneur?
1: No, I mean, that happened a lot later. I mean, I was really, really happy being an engineer in Silicon Valley. I mean, I, I was learning a lot. I, I was working with really smart people. And you know, for us engineers, I mean, I, I'm definitely the stereotypical introvert engineer, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not super social. And as long as you give me interesting work where I feel like I'm learning, I'll be happy. Uh, what happened is, is that I was there around the 2001, uh, dot-com crash. Mm, okay. And so there were a lot of layoffs and stuff like that. And I was uh, on, on the H-1B visa. And then basically the visa is tied to your employer. So if your employer has layoffs, you basically need to leave the country. And yeah. I found that very scary. I mean, I, you know, it's very difficult to, uh, you, you're given 10 days to leave the country. And, you know, imagine having to leave the country in 10 days, you know, arrange all the movers, arrange, close all your bank accounts. It's, it's very, very difficult. So what I did is, is I, I went to Mexico, I switched my visa to the TN visa, mm-hmm. and then I was able to come back for a year or two. But the experience scared me so much, the fact that if you lose your job, in the United States, you, you lose health insurance, you lose the, your right to stay in the country, and everything is so tied to your employer. It only just takes one bad employer or one, uh, you know, economic situation, and then you're sort of stuck. And I felt very insecure about that, so I decided that I, you know, I'm also a dual Italian citizen. I said, well, let's see how the situation is in Europe. So around that time, I'd said, okay, so uh, I'm gonna go see Europe. I had never lived here before. Uh, I've only visited Italy, you know, in our, in our vacations when I was a kid. So I said, let, let me see what Europe is like. So I took a bicycle. I landed in Lisbon, and I bicycled from Lisbon to Istanbul over a period of seven months. Okay. Just so that I could, you know, see Europe on my own. And so that was really good. Um, yeah, I, I I did tour a lot of countries there. Uh, saw a lot of people. You know, it was it was a nice uh, time off from from engineering, from all this like pressure of 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 you know what happens if you lose your job. And then I basically, uh, after the the end of the trip, I said, okay, well, this looks good. I I found a couple of countries that I think I would like to live in and I started applying to jobs. And uh, eventually I got a job in Switzerland and I've been here ever since. Um, But to go back to your question, why did I decide to become an entrepreneur? Is because, well then, okay, so then then you have the other culture shock, right? So in Europe, the way of working is is a little bit more conservative. The way to do business is more conservative. It's more like long-term focused. Uh, the pace of technology compared to Silicon Valley or compared to MIT is a lot slower, is a lot more cautious. You know, companies here don't tend to do their own R&D; they tend to outsource it to universities. So they sponsor a, a university research, then then somehow the research goes back into uh, the the company, and then the company industrializes. Uh, while in Silicon Valley, the companies themselves would have their own R&D departments, and innovation was very very important. So it was very different style of working that I never fully, truly got used to it. And maybe that's part of the reason why I started, wanted to start my own company here is uh, to, to be a little bit, you know, do more of the things that I wanted to do, do the the things at the pace that I wanted to do. And and, and that's basically why I started this other.
0: And, uh, but also like, I mean, I I agree with everything that you're saying, like everything it's a bit more, because I was also raised like in the American model, like where Mm -hmm. you, Go and you're yeah, well, and
1: Stanford is right in the middle of Silicon Valley. Yeah, but I, I don't
0: finally. think I, I don't think I got the entrepreneurial. I was there, but I don't think that the entrepreneurial bug really got me there. And also because you were
1: studying law, right? Yeah, because and patent laws, like.
0: Yeah, but I don't know. Lawyers per se are not really entrepreneurial. I would hmm. say they're similar to engineers, like they just like do their <laughs> the job, <laughs> and it's fine. But yeah, Stanford was there, but actually, I got it after when I was doing an MBA, that I I got like the not that I learned anything like groundbreaking or anything, but I just got like the confidence to, to yeah, do
1: something. Yeah, there's a lot of that, that you have to have this confidence. And it's funny, there's like a, to, to, to have a startup, You in some ways you have to be bold and confident, but in some other ways you have to be a bit naive. Yeah. Right? Because honestly, like looking, you know, one we're, we we've started Arcadia about one year, seven months ago. So we're almost going on two years. And it's so different the way you see it now. It's like, if, I really, when I started, had no clue about the difficulties that we would face. I mean, they were so huge. And if I had been fully aware of all those difficulties, the regulatory issues, the staff hiring issues, the technology, (laughs) the marketing, it's just... I would have never started it. You know, yeah, I would have said true. it's way too hard. It's just easier to, to you know, find another company that would hire me.
0: And how do, how do you manage to keep motivated through the whole process when you are actually in it?
1: Yeah, well, I think in, in this particular case with, with our startup. So let me tell you a little bit yeah, about yeah, what we do yes. and, 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 and what we are. So Arcadia is a startup that um, started off as a nonprofit initially. And now we're, we, are, we have a for-profit branch uh, one year later. So we have two now. So it's the nonprofit and the for-profit. And our job is uh, we build software that enables NGOs and aid organizations to help refugees integrate into the local economy. Because uh, one of the big problems is like everybody talks about the refugee crisis in Europe. Right now it's a big hot topic. And what happens is when when refugees come here, um, it's very difficult to integrate them into the local economy. Uh, First of all, because a lot of uh, countries do not let them work. they tend to isolate them in little reception camps, let's call them um, um, in a benign way, or, or, or refugee camps or, or whatever, or aid camps, um, and, and they tend to keep them isolated. But even if you do not come into these camps, even if you manage to come here like, and, and ask for asylum or whatever, you, you, you end up in being in this sort of limbo situation where you can't really work, you can't really move around. And uh, for instance, in Switzerland in particular, uh, when you apply for, your, uh, for, for asylum, they take your passport, uh, they take your identity documents. They they give you a little card. But this card, uh, when you go to a bank to try to apply for a bank account or you want okay. to send money or receive money, they they won't offer, offer a bank account. So we created this company uh, to to that uses the blockchain to actually enable refugees to to move their money money around with the help of an NGO. So it's actually. But but really before
0: in- that, how did you how did you decide to focus on this?
1: Good question. So, uh, it, again, I mean, like I'd always sort of wanted to, to start a company or something that's always been in the back of my mind. You know, I've been fed up with, with, with you know, the, doing things the same way. And one day I was browsing Facebook and somebody said, oh, you know, there's this hackathon uh, organized by Consensus, which is a hackathon on blockchain solutions for social impact uh, to better the world or, like, you know, environment or, you know, humanitarian things. And uh, would anybody want to join me? And I said, oh yeah, like I, I signed up. I, I, I wrote to this guy and said, yeah, let's form a team. I didn't know the guy, I just, you know, he just said, I'm, I'm looking for a team. But he never replied, <laughs> he never replied to my, to my message. And so then I, I just had this in the back of my mind, okay, well, you know, if, if he doesn't want to do it, well, why shouldn't I, you know? I mean, let me for, form a team. And I did, so I, 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 I participated in this hackathon. The hackathon had four branches. So it's blockchain, the theme of the hackathon is blockchain for social impact. Uh, they had the, the agriculture track. They had the, um, I think they had the medical uh, track. They had the refugee track. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I always, you know, my family lives in Mexico. We always send money back and forth. Uh, we're always not very happy with the way banks, yeah, you know, take I a long time. That. So it's it's a problem that I also had in the back of my mind. Mm. But initially, uh, you know, as I said, I had three little kids and they grow really fast. And so every once in a while I have to do something with their clothes, uh, uh, you know, and I try to donate it. But it's really funny here in Switzerland, when you want to donate clothes, uh, you just put them in this giant container, you yeah. put them in there, and it feels like you're throwing it to the trash. You never know what happens yeah, after, you yeah. never know who benefited it. And my initial idea for this hackathon is like, you know, maybe people would donate more. Oh, because, so anyway, so so this is the, a background prop, uh, uh, issue that I had. So I was a member on Facebook with a lot of groups of moms donating clothes to refugees, in fact. So, so there were like a ground, uh, you know, ad hoc aid organizations that, oh, you know, I know a refugee family that lives there. Does anybody have some shoes to donate? And they would organize around on Facebook. And so I was a member of these groups. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe, you know, we can combine like, you know, this, that the people donate through these Facebook groups, but maybe we could track this on the blockchain so that people could actually see where the donations actually went. And, and you could ensure that, that, that your donations really went to refugee families as opposed to ending up somewhere else, because you never know who really actually posts on Facebook. So, and so this is the idea I started the hackathon with. But during the hackathon, you have to do all your market research and blah, blah, blah. So I started talking to these, uh, these, these people who were donating the clothes and, and all these donation organizations. And I said, well, would you be interested in a solution that uses blockchain to track it and, and so that you could have a better tracking and your donors could, could know exactly where, where your donations went and maybe that way increase your donations? And I got an overwhelming response. No, 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 don't do this. We would never use it. I don't want the added bureaucracy, you know, if if you if you track us for little donations like a pair of socks or a pair of uh, sweaters or a pair of jackets, you know, it's going to slow us down. This is not a problem that needs solving. Uh, We wouldn't buy it and and it wouldn't be useful. So I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in the middle of this hackathon and people would not want to use my solution. So what do I do, (laughs) right? So then instead what I did is I went to all these organizations and I asked them, okay, so what is a problem that you see? What is a problem that you really see that is a problem? And they said, well, this is what we see, is that they're excluded, they cannot send money, they cannot receive money, they cannot pay for goods and services, they they cannot open bank accounts, they don't have access to financial services. Could you do something on the blockchain for that? And I said, well, that's perfect, because if you think about it, Bitcoin was precisely created to move money around between peers without intervention from banks and financial institutions. So I said, well, then building a nice little layer on top of that should be easy. So we did, I I built a a team, I I called some friends from work, and and we actually participated in this hackathon and we won second prize for the refugee track. And then we also won a big grant from uh, from the Women in Blockchain uh, organization, who gave an extra prize for the best solution that promotes a more equitable world. And the reason our, our, our solution promotes an equitable world is not because we're including refugees, but also because you could basically issue uh, this blockchain wallet to anybody. You could issue it to children, you can issue it to men, you can issue it to women, uh, without regards of really you know, their political affiliation or who they are, really. And uh, as long as the NGO says, yes, we, we are responsible for issuing all these cards. And uh, so, yeah, so, so we won that. And then, and, and then we saw that, that this, this idea had good potential to actually make a change and we decided to start this nonprofit. Uh, we then got accepted into uh, an incubator uh, based in Switzerland, in Geneva, Hatch Collab. Then shout out to the Hatch people, um, who basically help us make, make the connections with NGOs and, and with the UN and, 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 and basically make us develop this, this thing. And then uh, we released uh, uh, a beta version of our product uh, on, in July, and now this is available to mainstream users, because the idea is, is not to just give financial services to refugees, the idea is to inclu- include refugees into the mainstream economy. So what we also do is we issue these wallets also to the mainstream users, so people like you and I can also get a wallet and can use, also use it to spend it. And we are partnering up with local merchants so that they can accept payments with this with this card, this, this wallet. So the idea is, is to integrate everybody and and that's basically what we're doing now. We're, we're, we, we launched the beta. Uh, we have 50 mainstream users at the moment with four merchants, merchant partners. And um, we're basically just growing from there.
0: Um, well, it's really interesting. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts because I, I think last month I read an article or a, a book, not, something on Wired that they were talking about uh, Wired magazine. They were talking about like the promises of blockchain that never that delivered.
1: Never ha- that never <laughs> happened, yeah.
0: <laughs> because uh, I mean, blockchain like you hear it everywhere. Even in the WTO, I think we have a blockchain event next next week. Yeah, you told me tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I remember like a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about about blockchain and. Well, first of all, can you tell us what blockchain is just to like a quick summary?
1: Yeah, so a quick summary is is, is blockchain is it's like, is, it's a network of computers that are all basically keeping track of transactions. They, they're called transactions, but transactions could be anything from, you know, who sent money to whom. It could be a message. It could be a file upload. It could be an action in an application. But uh, these transactions, you know, let's just call them that it's who sent money to whom so it's 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 a system and a set of protocols where these these computers are are processing all these transactions so one computer sends say money money or a token to another computer then all the other computers somehow have to agree that this actually happened so that then there's a centralized ledger of these transactions that is one incorruptible permanent set of truth
0: yeah, so it cannot be altered
1: it cannot be altered simply because there's so many computers that have to agree to make it true that if you want to al- out oh, that's the other thing the reason it's blocked it's called chain is because all transactions depend on all the previous transactions that happen so you can't just arbitrarily add a transaction you actually have to do some clever mathematics to make sure that the next transaction is approved is agreed to and is consistent with all the previous transactions that happened so that's why it's changed chained, and that's why it's very difficult to alter because in order to get a new transaction approved you, all of the all of the network has to approve it and in order for you to alter a previous transaction from long ago you would basically have to alter the whole chain that happened before and after so it's not that easy and you know in order to do that you basically have to corrupt at least 51% of the computers to agreeing and if you're just you know one bad hacker you cannot easily do that so that's why it's so secure
0: so yes i mean uh, thank you for explaining this yeah. so this in principle sounds like it can be really useful for almost everything From logistics to to financial everything. Uh, One of the most uh, known, well-known applications, I guess, is uh, Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. Uh, and this has been, I guess, a blessing and also like a (laughs) like
1: a curse. Yeah, (laughs) like
0: a curse. Uh, Actually, I remember, like, was it two or three years ago when everyone around this time in Thanksgiving was talking about like investing on Bitcoin
1: yeah for sure I remember the the big boom and crash of November December <laughs>
0: <laughs> and in this I mean I i want to hear your thoughts because I, I don't know what I mean I was reading this article and I was thinking yeah actually I've like I remember there were so many startups that were working on this but I I cannot pinpoint like one and then for example right now the Think that Facebook is doing Libra?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh,
0: I don't. I cannot pinpoint like one that actually like delivered. And this this article was also saying that some of the startups are purposefully not mentioning that they're on blockchain just because it's scary. Yeah, investors. and
1: we find that too. That that we are now moving our message to say that we are issuing electronic money. We don't say Ethereum or we don't say tokens anymore. So yeah, we do get that feedback a lot. I think, yeah. I think this happens with every new technology. I mean, at the moment it's blockchain, but it also happens with AI. Like there's this huge hype. There's a lot of this media thing that, oh, you know, for instance, AI or blockchain is gonna solve all these problems, blah, blah, blah. And then no doubt, there are a lot of actors that take advantage of it. And in the case of blockchain, it was a very interesting case because suddenly somebody invented this new way of raising money for startups. So before, if you wanted to raise money for startups, you had to like, you know, put in your own cash or, you know, find an angel investor, or go to a VC, or get a loan from a bank, right? And all of these processes of getting getting funding uh, is, is, is difficult. Uh, suddenly, now they're like, for instance, an analogy is Kickstarter. Now with Kickstarter, a lot of people can start their own projects, but even so, Kickstarter or these crowdfunding campaigns are still not ideal because you still have to do a lot of work to get the crowd in the first place to donate. Yeah. So you have to do a lot of marketing, like you have to put in a lot of effort. So what happened with, with blockchain is so that once Ethereum came in, it was really easy for anybody to issue tokens and designate tokens are like these little like coins, let's say, on a blockchain, and, and then uh, sell these coins uh, without a lot of regulation and say, okay, well, this is part of our company. You can invest on in it. And then if you trade the tokens, uh, uh, you know, the value of the tokens can go up. <coughs> so what happened is that a lot of these startups, they started issuing their own tokens. These, are, these were called ICOs. They were putting on these massive campaigns On the engineering and the reddits and of of people who are very technically minded and even some VCs as well uh, some people with more money who were coming into the Bitcoin hype and um, and and starting uh, getting investment for their companies this way and what happens is like suddenly you know within you know You would start raising and within a week you would end up with you know a million two million to run your company right, so in a way it is like, I sort of blame both sides there. I blame a lot of these investors or the people who bought the tokens for not doing the proper due diligence that a VC might do or or proper understanding. You know, a lot of these projects were funded with just an idea, with no proof of concept, no real prototypes. The, the startup, some of them hadn't even hired. Um, and they raised a lot of money that way. And, 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 and so a lot of the investors, they put in, they threw in a lot of money in these altcoins and these tokens that eventually didn't deliver, or if they are delivering, they're delivering a lot slower. And on the other hand a lot of companies also um, some of them were outright scams on purpose deliberately and some of them you know they sort of like came into this problem from their own fame right i mean if you are a a new startup founder you're working with this new technology and suddenly you have two million in funding that you raised in a week then you also like you know maybe start being less cautious with your spending right you start spending maybe you suddenly hire a bunch of people uh, you maybe hire an office maybe you spend a lot in marketing and whatever but maybe you don't spend enough time in an actual product So there's a little bit of that. And then a lot of it is also that, you know, in technology, uh, it's not linear. Uh, Technology and software development is not like bricklaying. It's not like you invest 100k and you will get a 100k product. That doesn't always happen all the time, you know, there's a lot of like... Uh, variability, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of human error that creeps in and, and, and managing software is, <coughs> is really hard. There are very few companies that know how to do it properly and, and it's notoriously hard for startups to do it. So a little bit was investor ignorance, a little bit was you know startup deliberate wrongdoing or ignorant wrongdoing and a little bit is also the fact that you know technology is uncertain. Everything that's new is uncertain. So there was a little bit of that and that's why it ended up happening that a lot of pro- uh, projects have not yet delivered. Some of them have delivered. I mean, there are a lot of really good projects out there. Uh, I'm familiar, for instance, with Uport, which is an identity project where you can manage your own identity on on, on the blockchain. Um, There have been a lot of uh, really good projects about making different blockchains interoperable and talk to each other, which is very, very important. Um, And in our case, for instance, we do not use our own blockchain. We do not issue our own tokens. All we're really doing is we're actually... Saying, okay, this blockchain already exists and what we're gonna do is we're gonna make it easy to use for normal people. Because at the moment, you know, even if you want to invest in, in Bitcoin, you know, most people don't know how to do it. Uh, if you try to go to one of the more friendly exchanges, you still have to click through many, many times. It's it's intimidating. There's this issue of, you know, you have to manage your private keys and your memory seed and this and that and like you know, I'm an engineer. When I first started learning about this, I thought, oh, no way, you know, I'm really scared of investing in this stuff. You know, what happens if I lose my seed? You know, it's, it's not very simple. Um, and so what we're trying to do is we have made it simple by putting your, your, your account basically on a little card. Um, uh, it's all based on a QR code. When you want to spend money, you, you just flip your, your QR code. And we don't go around with like, you know, punching secret numbers and having this hardware <laughs> thing and, you know, and having to use a big computer because it's intended for, for a low... Uh, low, not very well educated user, not very tech savvy user, and we're also moving very small amounts of money. So we, the 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 money that refugees would have on their wallet is, you know, at most, you know, fifty, hundred bucks. So if if you you make a horrible mistake and you lose your keys, you know, at most you lose a hundred bucks, right? So so our use case is, is more like our company is basically just using the existing technology. We're not doing a lot of research into new technology at all. All we're really doing is putting a nice friendly wrapper so that people like you and I. Can use it in a way that's friendly so that's why in a way our startup is a lot less risk because we're not doing this risky you know new uh development and, and that requires hundreds of engineers you know i mean it's just really a simple web app that's on one that one hand the other hand is because we started as a nonprofit, we're building a lot of trust uh, with organizations it's super important because we're working with vulnerable populations that we start with the humans first so a lot of our, our work and, and a lot of our strength, I think, is like we have done the groundwork, we have been in touch with all these refugee organizations, we have been to- in touch with refugees. We uh, uh, constantly run uh, joint uh, partnerships with refugee organizations, for instance, with Friends with Power Coders, which is an organization that teaches refugees uh, how to code and helps, thank you, helps them find uh, a job uh, uh, as, as programmers afterwards. We are in touch with SINGA, which is another Swiss-based organization that is basically an incubator for uh, for refugee entrepreneurs. And we support them and, 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 and we, you know, go give, give courses there. We're trying to do some joint projects as well, uh, how to, like, move financing for, 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 for refugee entrepreneurs. So I think... A lot of that groundwork is super important because, as I mentioned before, you can't do everything alone. Even if you have this brilliant India, even if you were the super genius and I'm not and our company is not, (laughs) um, uh, you can't do everything alone and especially tackling a a problem as complex, which is inclusion of of the other into a real society and making sure that society also welcomes this inclusion. You know, our, our, our mission is more of a social mission than it is a technology mission, but on the other hand, we also are very fast and very agile and able to use the technology and, 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 and mold the technology quickly because we have a lot of product development expertise as well. So I think our strength is we have both of these worlds and, and we have a really, really good team of people, you know, they spread all over the world who really believe in our mission. I mean, that's, that's super important to us and all, our, all of the people who work to us, they're not in there for the money and the glory because at the moment we, we were very small startup and we are basically run with basically pro bono volunteers advisories and Everybody who's there is, is really passionate about what we do and, and that's that's what we've managed to come this far so. Um,
0: so maybe what you're describing it's a bit like what happened with the boom in Silicon Valley like before and it cleared everything out and then like right now we're having like a second one.
1: Exactly, uh, the, the, the real the ones good ones, that, ones that yeah. remain. Yeah, and, good. and I think you're gonna see the same in AI as well. I mean, you, you're you gonna see this in, in, in the same, every technology, you're gonna see this in AI. We have seen it in MedTech too. I mean, everybody has heard of Terranos, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's always like this hype. There's a lot of hype, hype, hype. And then there's a little bit of a crash when, when people realize, oh, you know, that, that was, was just hype. But then whoever survives or whoever is born from the ashes is hopefully companies that are a little bit more solid and and, and leave with the lessons learned as well, right? Because as I, m- I mentioned, I think a lot of the crashes and a lot of the failures, yes, there were a few bad actors, uh, but some of them were simply, you know, just people didn't know better. And now, in fact, uh, for, for in- issuing, um, for raising money through the blockchain, we no longer just have ICOs, we have uh, well, I don't remember anymore, but they, we have other instruments for raising money via tokens that are different. And now there's also regu- regulation, right? So so now regulation is coming in into play and, and, and people have to now be compliant with regulation. There's more KYC, AML checks and stuff like that. So, so you know, sometimes you have to have this shakeup so that, you know, so that things improve. Yeah.
0: And uh, how do you compare the innovation environment? Because I think you Switzerland has been trying to become like a hub for innovation. For sure. Uh, I think there is, there's a lot of, a lot, you mentioned it, a lot going on here. Uh, how do you compare this one with uh, Silicon Valley?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think in Switzerland, it's, it's mostly a European thing that people tend to be a lot more cautious. Yeah. Right. So, and also things may have changed a bit from when I was in Silicon Valley, but in, 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 in Silicon Valley, You know, it's very easy to get funded if you're technical and have a brilliant idea to deliver something fast. So Silicon Valley is very product focused. You know, if if you're able to to deliver something fast, if you're able to be very agile, iterating on the technology, it's very easy or relatively, not very easy, but relatively easy to get funded Mm -hmm. because there's this, this very nice culture that really values technology itself. In Switzerland and Europe in general, people are a little bit more business minded. They're more cautious. So when you go and try to get funding, you have to make more of a business case, is, is our experience, what, what we have found, that it's not enough to, to have a, a great, fantastic new technology. It's not enough to have a good team. Uh, it's not enough to be young and, and, and be hardworking. And, you know, they really want to see, well, yeah, but show me the numbers, you know, show me the business. Are you actually able to sell? And typically they won't fund you until you can actually prove that you have the customers. I mean, this is true also in Silicon Valley, but, but in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, you had lots of e- even very big companies that were not profitable for many many years. I mean, we're talking, you know, Amazon for instance was not profitable for many 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 years. Uh, yeah, people, Twitter people forget that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Twitter was, you know, you know, Uber is still not profitable, yeah. and they had this huge IPO already. And here in 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 Europe, I think it would be very difficult for a company like Uber or Twitter to to be funded because it's like, well, where's the real case, mm. right? So so people tend to be a bit more cautious. And and in in one way, I also think. That, that could be also why we haven't seen too many fast growth companies in, in Europe. You know, we have seen a couple, but not too many. Yeah. So it's kind of like a balance, right? I mean, it has its advantages and disadvantages. And and, and and as a startup founder, I think you have to, like, recognize that and not try to change the rules of the game. Just you use the rules as best as you can. And, then, like, you know, that's something that we have had to do in, in, for our startup uh, because in, in the regulatory space in particular, but we have had to, like, find the... I mean this is just general advice if you want to do something find the best location that allows you to do that thing that you're trying to do because just because you live in 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 switzerland for for instance doesn't mean that switzerland is the most favorable place to to do what you want to do or just because you're in silicon valley that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the most favorable place for the thing that you want to do so don't be scared of moving around and, and 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 trying to find a way and i think that comes from the mexican philosophy right the mexicans are always Trying to find the, the way, you know? <laughs> we, we say it in a more or less nice name, el que no transa no avanza. Yeah. But, that, but I, it's, it's not, I, I don't, transa meaning if, if you have to be illegal, do it illegally. And I definitely do not second that. But what I do second is the general philosophy, which is find the way, you know? Maybe the, the way is yeah. not always super following the rules, but try to find the way a little bit around the rules without violating the rules or try to find the other place. Just trying to find the way and make your own way.
0: And that's why also like I see that in Mexico, especially like in the area of Guadalajara, it's flourishing for all these new technologies as well. Oh
1: that's really good to hear, yeah.
0: Um but regarding the talent, for example, you see the same talent here, uh for engineers and
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's different, right? I mean, again, they emphasize different things. Um, I think, I think in, in the United States, the whole United States culture is about breaking the rules. Let's break the rules, be new, be, be individual. And here in Switzerland, even engineers, they're more... Uh, they're more correct and I have found this throughout my jobs I- engineers are, are, are typically they're very good at following process so, so they have very good quality control and that sort of stuff but sometimes when when it and when at times it comes time to like make do with a little bit that you have or you know you know some sometimes you know I would request hey we need to do this and and the answer would come from management and the engineers well we cannot do it because we don't have that And I would say, well, let's build it. And they're like, what? No, well, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so there's there's a little bit of hesitation to to be innovative in that sense. But on the other hand, there's a lot of uh, uh, government. There's like, I see like this institutional push to make sure that Switzerland stays at the forefront. So there's a lot of uh, programs in universities, uh, from governments, from NGOs, trying to make keep Swiss, Switzerland innovative. It's just a matter of whether that suffices uh, when you have a culture where the innovation is a little bit more grassroots, like in Silicon Valley or in the States, right? Where, where the individual is, is left to, to be independent and to be different. But I see that uh, at the whole levels of culture, I see that even in, in, at the level of school. You know, because um, uh, in school, you know, kids right from kindergarten, they're taught to follow the rules, they're taught to be obedient, they're taught to do things a certain way. And it's, it's not very well tolerated when something, somebody is very different, you know. So being a good rule follower is, is prized and it's part of the, of the Swiss culture. And uh, it has its advantages, but it also has its disadvantages. Just like, you know, being individual and being kind of like a, like a, a little bit of a rebel has its advantages in the U.S., but it also has its disadvantages. Yeah. So as I said, it's like what you have to do, I think, as an entrepreneur is to try to, and also as an engineer, is like you try to optimize, you know, knowing that these are the rules in these places, you know, try to find the people, try to put them in the right spot. I mean, if I get a volunteer who is really good at, the business aspect of things, but it's not very creative, then, well, yeah, I'm going to give him a business task, right? You know, it makes sense. Or if I get somebody who's super creative, then maybe I'm not going to put him in, in a position where he's going to be going against the established way of doing things, right? You know, I might put him, you know, in a, in a different way. And, and people also find their way a lot. I mean, one of the ways I, I really like to manage groups in general is that if you're passionate about something, even if you don't know about it, I will let you go find out and figure it out you know I, I'm not somebody who's gonna tell you do it this way do it that way you know if you want to do this go do it I'll give you I'll throw at you all the resources but then give me some results right I mean if I'm giving you this freedom give me some results and as long as you're giving some results and as long as you're, you keep pushing it and you're enthusiastic well that's great and if you want to change then change you know when you're when you're running a company there's so many things you have to do so many fifty thousand things that for sure, we will find a place for you. <laughs> you. know, If you want to work with us, we will find a place where you're yeah, happy. I, I've and heard that we before it
0: before, that you look for someone who's talented and not so much for the position. Exactly. Find not so much
1: the skill, but the attitude yeah. and, and the willingness to 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 learn, basically. And,
0: and I've seen that. Like, I mean, I had a bit of experience with, in a startup. And what you were talking about, I felt that everything that you describe about the Swiss environment, I think it also goes to the hunger of the individual That's true. they follow the rules and they're just not hungry for more they're, they're they have a privileged life here so but
1: is that that it's also it could be that it's sort of beaten down at you like if, if everything through school they tell you, you have to behave this way you have to behave this way like i, I see it with my kids i mean <coughs> i just had a parent teacher conference and they said well you know your kid obviously is, is is very smart he knows a lot of things but he disturbs all those people because he gets bored and he starts doing something else right and 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 In one way, I understand the teacher that she has to keep the discipline because there are other students that are trying to learn and something. But in another way, I sort of felt for my kid as well, because, you know, if you're somebody who's curious, you're somebody who wants to do something else, you're somebody who wants to learn more things, you know, being asked to sit on the chair and just wait until everybody else is finished is is not super fun. Right. So
0: that's actually that's what I feel like my regular day job with my daughters. It's like to make sure that that doesn't die off and like it continues in her
1: yeah and and, and that requires a lot of effort from the parents yeah. too because i see like at, at the level of whole you know even here in switzerland if, if you skip the queue right if you're on the bank and you skip the queue everybody you, you will find like big social lashback, right but in mexico right somebody skips the queue you're like oh yeah well okay she's a little old lady yeah okay whatever you know and yeah. and, and people are a little yeah maybe if they're really angry you know because you've been waiting for an hour they might say something but even if they say something, the person just keeps skipping the queue, right? <laughs> so, I don't know. It's just like this. It's, it's about optimizing. And you, guys, as you said, as a fa- father or as a parent, you know, give give them the opportunity to to see other ways of being, you know.
0: Um, I also saw from your LinkedIn that you have this, but you're also, like, busy with other projects. How do you manage? No? You, you had, like, something... A couple of other projects that you were working on
1: well I have the resume building service but yeah. I, that, I really don't have time to manage that anymore that's uh. sort of winding down but yeah I think I mean all these other projects are basically ways for you to learn things and and, and everything helps that's so, how you see it like absolutely it so that's adds I,
0: up something to your ev- all
1: experience. the time so for instance my kids you know they'll be interested in the weirdest things. so I, I give you an example one of my kids right now uh, he found some some straws in the kitchen and they happened to be black and he was also eating a piece of baby bell cheese, which was red. And, and he, for some reason, had this idea to put the wax on top of the straw, like to do some sort of craft. And I thought, oh, my God, he's making a mess. You know, how am I <laughs> going to tell him to put everything back? <laughs> but at the moment, I was busy doing something else, and I just didn't give it much thought. And then 20 minutes later, he comes to me, and he says, look, Mama, this looks like a vein. Don't you think it looks like a vein? And I thought wow that's pretty interesting like because now he's he's putting together a lot of things he's putting together the fact that veins are sort of tubes where things go up and down he's putting together the idea that veins are inside the body therefore they have blood around them and you know they must look red and I thought wow that's that's really cool I'm glad I didn't tell him to put everything away just because he was making a mess in my house and you know i i feel that that somebody who was more like rules oriented and more order oriented would have said to the kid hey put that back because you're making a mess and i thought you know i'm glad i didn't tell him that yes i'm gonna have to clean up a little more later but on the other hand it's more important that he that he makes these connections with his brain and that he figures it out all on his own you know yeah so. that's
0: great uh so well, you're gonna continue working on this uh, arcadia and uh what else is next for you
1: well, so in terms of Arcada, that, that really sucks up uh, <laughs> most of our time and our concentration. We are really, really happy because uh, we're looking now for, for starting some pilots in, 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 in some small communities with refugees. We have a fantastic volunteer in Peru who is looking into helping uh, refu- uh, Venezuelan refugees in Trujillo. Mm. So he's starting a project over there and uh, he's doing a fantastic job. Uh, we also have three little pilots uh, running with three small NGOs, uh, 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 one in Italy, um, uh, one here in, in, in Switzerland and, and, and one in the UK. Uh, so, the idea with our software is that not only do we give these wallets to refugees, but we're also helping NGOs optimize their, their, their needs, right? So, uh, NGOs are using our, our platform in ways that we didn't necessarily expect. So, our, our basic use case is that NGOs give uh, these wallets to refugees, and the refugees use these wallets to access services, to pay for things, and, and to integrate into the local economy, because we are also using similar wallets to do the same sort of stuff. But in these little pilots that we're doing, an, an NGO is using our, our wallets to send money between their own internal offices. Oh. So before they used the banks, now they're using our wallets, which is a lot faster and cheaper. So that's one interesting use case. Another one, and this is one of my favorite use cases, is this is, this is a, a government aid organization here in Switzerland that already helps refugees um, with, um, with housing and with language support. They give them courses and stuff like that. And uh, they also give them cash transfers. They already have a solution uh, with, partnered up with, with their own bank. But one of the things that they saw is that when refugees receive these bank cards, they don't really know what to do about them. You know, they, 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 they will go and say, OK, well, now I have this card. Well, how do I get my cash? You know, give me the, 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 the bills. And so we are working with them where Arcadia is used as a kind of play bank and we teach workshops to refugees to show them how you would look and check your balance how you would log in and stuff like that because you can't do that with a real bank account because you know it's real money and so we use Arcadia as a teaching tool so i thought it was really really cool that you know obviously we have the platform that does the real use case of of, of moving the money around but we can also very easily spin up an instance of our platform and have people use it as a play uh, as a as a practice uh, bank uh, and move uh, pretend tokens around uh, and and it works so that was a really good one. And another one, the, the, the one that we have in the UK, this pilot is using our cards to keep track of, um, uh, of a charity shop. So a charity shop is giving out uh, shoes and, 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 and furniture and stuff like that to refugee families. And before, you know, they, they obviously give all of this for free, but they weren't able to uh, very efficiently keep track of, of which refugee families were receiving what. Uh, so now we track them with our wallets. It's a, it's a free token as well. So we're using just a just a, a Robston Ether. But with these wallets, uh, now the, the shop is able to to track who bought what and where it went. So it's uh, it's actually really good, and I'm, I'm really happy that the, that they're using the platform in ways that is that is bigger than the original use case. Yeah. And that to me is is a sign of a successful product because people are using in ways that you didn't necessarily think so yeah so we're supporting these pilots and we're starting the the new ones in a smaller, you know uh, more contained refugee and merchant ecosystem and that's basically what we're focusing on for the next year wow Uh,
0: thank you very much for taking some time from your busy day to no thank you it has been a great conversation and i really appreciate you thank you elisa
1: thank you so much it was nice talking to you